This is the View from the Couch podcast, and I'm your host, Pierce Wiesenar. And on the program today, I'm taking a look at Blood of My Blood, the sixth episode from this current season of Game of Thrones. And we start things off outside the wall. After Hodor holding the door, Mira and Bran continue to run away from those whites. How could they possibly survive against an oncoming horde of the undead? Well, it happens that if you have an undead wild card of your own, survival is all but assured. The return of Benjen Stark is something many have been waiting a long time for. 20 years is a very long time to wait for Benjen to return, and it brings several questions that are extremely hard to answer. For starters, where was he? And what was he up to? Apparently, he led a ranging party beyond the wall, was stabbed by the White Walkers, and left for dead. We've seen the rapid speed at which people turn after the Battle of Hardhome last year, which makes me wonder what made Benjen such a special case. Benjen then reveals he was saved by the Children of the Forest via Dragonglass to the Heart and has worked with the Three-Eyed Raven. Benjen believes in Bran, his power as a Green Seer, and is the next person to teach Bran about his powers. First step is drinking a bowl of rabbit blood. When Mira was struggling to move Bran away from the cave, Bran was still connected to the Weirwood Net. Here we saw some great moments from the books, as well as Bran catching up on what he missed over the last several seasons of the show. It was a great bit of exposition for Bran, and the frantic editing was a great match to the Whites chasing them down. Bran's vision included Mad King Ares, his wildfire castage stored throughout the city, Jaime killing the Mad King, then sitting on the Iron Throne, a dragon, probably Drogon, flying over King's Landing, and the wildfire caches stored in King's Landing exploding. Now the episode framed the, the explosions as if they were caused by Dragonfire, but in reality it could be a very different story. And then we finally saw a bloody hand that looked like it could be from inside the Tower of Joy. The story of Mad King Aerys wanting to burn them all was told by Jamie to Brienne in the Baths of Harrenhal right after he lost his sword hand. It's my favorite passage in the books, as well as in the show. I won't go into the history of it all and try to explain it. Look up that scene online if you haven't seen it, or have you forgot it, because you certainly won't regret it. Bad. Bran went backwards in times and potentially forward in time, only to return to the present when Benjen arrived. I'm very curious how Benjen affects Bran and vice versa. Bran hasn't had any family with him since he left Rickon and Osha. Plus, Benjen is very adamant that Bran become the new Three-Eyed Raven. Hopefully, he'll be a better teacher than that old face in the tree. Benjen has returned from the dead and hasn't seen any family since he left Jon at Castle Black in Season 1. The Starks have been all over the world and are now coming back together. It all started with Sansa and Jon a few episodes ago. Now we have Benjen and Bran together outside the cave. Plus, Rickon makes a return to Winterfell. Things haven't looked this good for the Stark kids in quite some time, which only makes you wonder who the next one is to die. Because if, you're, if you are looking for a happy ending, you have come to the wrong place. In the Dothraki Sea, after, after proving her new fireproof superpower, sending away Jorah to Explora, Dany now leads her new Kalsar to Marine. How the city of Marine will house an influx of several thousand Dothraki is something only Tyrion will have to figure out. When Dany emerged from the temple of the Dosh Kaleen, she appeared to be changed. In the books, she remembers the words of her house, fire and blood, and in the show, she became fireproof. Dario makes the salient point that Dany is not a ruler, but a conqueror. Spending far long in Marine, sitting on a throne, 
Listening to the whims and the pleas of her people made Danny very soft, unfocused, and ultimately kept her away from achieving her goal of sitting on the Iron Throne. In the season premiere, we saw Danny's fleet get burned with all of these Dothraki, freed slaves, second sons, unsullied. Danny has a fair amount of people to ferry across the narrow sea without any ships. When doing some quick math, Dio deduces that a thousand ships would be enough to move everyone across the narrow sea to Westeros. A thousand ships, you say? That number, it's a bit on the nose because the newly crowned king of the Iron Islands, Euron Greyjoy, wants a thousand ships built for the Iron Fleet, not only to woo Danny, but to kill his niece Yara and nephew Theon, who magically stole what was left of the Iron Fleet and are headed to Marine as well. How convenient it all just falls into place. It really just makes your head hurt. They could have made that moment, that hint, wink, or nod of the Ironborn getting Danny to Westeros so much better. Lines like this are beneath the quality we have come to expect from HBO as well as Thrones this season. That whole exchange would have felt right at home in the dumpster fire that was most of season 5. If you've been wondering where Drogon is, well it appears that Danny can make him appear out of thin air. Was he around the next hill? I was very confused with Drogon's return because it was so incredibly botched. Because dragons, they're awesome. Doesn't matter if you're a book reader or a show watcher, everybody loves a dragon. They are the money shot in more ways than one. And to have Danny just wander off and return after really who knows how long with Drogon was very weird and it was very confusing as well. Danny makes another speech in her tour across Essos about going to Westeros and winning everything. From the Arm of Dorne to the Wall, she's going to win all seven kingdoms something her great ancestor Aegon the Conqueror was unable to do. Well, the episode ends with Danny's speech for the crowd to fawn over once again. The speech does lack any real substance because it's all just surface level. Her intentions are genuine, and this time it looks like the show will grant her the power to move across the narrow sea. There are several things that need ironing out. The Dothraki don't like the sea. They don't like oceans. And with it's going to take a lot of arm twisting to really put them all of them on a boat and their beloved horses on ships on water that they believe to be poison. And yes, the few that remained with her in her Kalsar, the ones you haven't seen in several seasons, have crossed the open sea before, becoming the first Kalsar to cross the sea in the process. But that was only a handful and they got very seasick along the way. How she plans on moving an even larger Kalsar across more ocean that and then have them fight immediately afterwards once they reach does Danny want to see her new blood riders sack rape and pillage the kingdom she plans on ruling we've seen what the Dothraki do after a victory and we've also seen that Danny isn't a fan of what happens next while Danny has a history of giving the middle finger to foreign cultures histories and economies I'm curious as to what Danny looks like in Westeros after spending so long talking about it will she arrive a hero to save the kingdoms from the White Walkers and Whites, as well as the political infighting that has crippled the realm? Or will she arrive on the shores of Westeros, the figurehead of a foreign religion, head of an extinct house, leader of a thousands of people who don't know the language or know Westerosi ways, general of an army, sitting atop a dragon, aiming to put those seven kingdoms under her foot? As you can see, you know what I want to see happen next. But the show and the show-only crowd has such a hard-on for Danny that I really doubt they'd paint her in such a villainous light. Moving things on next, we take a look at what happened in Bravos because after watching the theater company recreate the Purple Wedding again with a fair amount of alterations to the actual events, it appears that 
Arya is a human after all. After spending five seasons under various names and genders and hellbent on killing anyone that has wronged her, the facade falls away after Lady Crane mourns the loss of Joffrey on stage. Afterwards, the two have a conversation, and Arya looks even more human than we have seen in recent seasons. Arya gets a moment to grieve the loss of her father when telling Lady Crane how she could potentially change the lines in the play. Then Arya looks at herself in the mirror as if to beat audiences over the head. And in a moment everyone saw coming, Arya stops Lady Crane from drinking the poison rum, outing who she thinks wants her killed. Spoiler alert, it's the actress who plays Sansa. She then returns to find Needle, somehow undamaged after spending all that time under the rocks of Braavos. Arya has apparently turned her back on the faceless men and now has a potential route back to Westeros as the theater company travel around when performing. I wouldn't be surprised if Arya heads back to home or maybe Slaver's Bay after dealing with the fallout of her actions. And if you thought Arya was bad at pretending to be no one, the Waif is probably a very close second. As no one, you're supposed to be more like Jack and Agar, someone who doesn't really hold, gl- hold grudges, have any real personality, and doesn't hate other trainees. Yet the Waif got her green light to kill Arya after she didn't kill Lady Crane. Why the Waif wants to kill her is pretty silly if you ask me, but I guess every plot needs a villain. For the first time, Thrones takes us to Horn Hill. The lush greenery of Horn Hill is a stark contrast to the barren and bleak white snow of Craster's Keep. The contrast continues when we meet the Tarly family. Sam's mother and sister are sweet and loving, taking them both in with open arms. Sam's father reminds me of Tylen Lannister, Roose Bolton, Balon Greyjoy, and Walder Frey, as they are the stone-hearted fathers that are bitterly disappointed in their children. The portrayal of Randall Tarly was amazing, just as cruel as the book's detail. The dinner scene was great, the tension in the room made me uncomfortable, which is a credit to the show. Before the dinner, Sam told Gilly to keep her mouth shut about being wilding, and she obviously failed to do so when she stood up for Sam. Why Randall Tarly hates wildings is such an odd one for me, considering he lives so far south. It looked like Sam had kind of some PTSD when he was dealing with his father and hearing his father just berate him. Remember, Sam's father threatened to kill him if Sam didn't renounce his inheritance and take the black. If that didn't, if that dinner scene didn't work then what Sam does next isn't as impactful. In another moment we all saw coming, Sam doesn't leave Gilly and Sam Jr. at Horn Hill when he makes a chain at the Citadel. Of course he's going to take her with him and take his family's great star to Heartsbane with them to Old Town as well. In every scene with Sam and Gilly, he has repeated how he can't take Gilly and the baby with him, yet that is exactly what he does in this episode. Plus, he took the most cherished possession of his father, in Heartsbane. If you thought Randall Tarly was mean at dinner, then I can't wait to see Randall Tarly hunting his son down for the theft of Heartsbane. While it made for a fun moment and a satisfying conclusion for their time at Horn Hill, what Sam plans on doing next is something worth watching. At King's Landing, the battle for King Tommen, control of the city, has finally came to a head. After a lot of buildup, how were the Lannister twins going to outwit the Faith? Jamie arrives with a host of Tyrell men and Lord Mace Tyrell, donning the greatest helmet Westeros has ever seen. Jamie threatens to kill the High Sparrow, but the High Sparrow is more than willing to be a martyr in front of the huge King's Landing crowd. Then the High Sparrow finally reveals his hand, and to the shock of all in attendance, there will be no walk of shame. 
Instead, the king, queen, and Kingsguard have all come to see the light of the seven. The Lannisters and Tyrells have lost to the faith, and the fallout is immediate with King Tommen kicking Jaime out of the Kingsguard and sending him to Riverrun. For the second time ever, a member of the Kingsguard has been fired. First, Sir Barristan Selmy, and now Jaime. The Kingsguard, it's a position for life, like the Night's Watch, and that you also give up your inheritance as well, which was why... Tywin hated the fact that Jaime joined the Kingsguard because it left him with Tyrion as his only heir to Casterly Rock. Jaime has been a part of the Kingsguard since he was 15. He knows no other life. I wonder what impact this will have on the character, and I hope this will kind of put Jaime back on the path he was on in seasons 3 and 4, but then wandered off last season when he headed off to Dorne. Also, Jamie heading to River Run will see Jamie reunited with Brienne as she's heading there to gain support for the North. Plus, we get a glimpse of Bronn when he snatched Pot away in the season in, this, in the next episode trailer. So, I wonder if Bronn will maybe join the Brotherhood without banners as they are mentioned briefly as well. In the Twins, once again, the show introduces us to a long-forgotten character. We started things off with Benjamin returning from the dead, and the end of the show. We have Lord Walder Frey re-entering the Frey. David Bradley so good at being Walder Frey. It's always fun to see the show getting the best out of its very talented cast. Walder Frey berates his two sons about losing Riverrun to the Blackfish. While his two sons believe that it's impossible to siege Riverrun, especially with the Blackfish in charge, Walder Frey reveals that Edmure Tully has their secret weapon to bring out the Blackfish out of hiding. The next episode, it's titled The Broken Man. The title can mean a many things. A certain Gravedigger, maybe, or other characters we haven't seen in quite some time, or maybe pretty much every male character is broken in some respect. From the trailer for the episode, we see Jamie arriving at River Run and meeting with the Blackfish. The frame men are at River Run as well, presumably with Edmure Tully in tow. Lady Olenna scolds Cersei after the debacle at the Sept, Sansa towards the north, looking for support in her fight against the Boltons. Yara and Theon arrive in Volantis to plan their next move against their uncle and king. Tormund tries to get the Wildlings to fight with Jon against the Boltons. So next episode, it looks like there's going to be a lot of buildup for some stuff that's going to happen towards the end of this season. Especially for me, interesting plot is not only what's going on with the stuff in River Run, but really what's going to happen in King's Landing. This has been another episode of the View from the Couch podcast. Thanks for listening.